0: Over the course of regular car reviews, we've done plenty of videos from the New York International Auto Show, but I never really thought about the history behind the show. For instance, did you know that the average time spent at the event for any given attendee is 3.45 hours? Did you know that over 60% of attendees plan on buying a car within the next calendar year? Taken in its totality, it's not hard to see why the New York International Auto Show is as popular as it is. Sure, it's a hype fair for automakers and exhibitionists, with new cars making their debut, classic cars returning to the limelight, and people of all backgrounds coming together to celebrate and bitch about cars. But in a general sense, that's kind of what car shows have always been about, whether it's your cars and coffee at the local Sonic every Saturday, or an annual exhibition of vehicles that dance around price ranges from reasonable to downright extortionate. There's a feeling of community to any auto show, even when disagreements abound, and it's because, in large part, the enthusiasm for cars is self-evident. When you get to big car shows like this, I feel like there's a genuine enthusiasm that comes through, even in those corporate talking head segments that make up the bulk of each and every presser, or in the voice of every YouTuber filming content through a Samsung Galaxy and breathing with the punctuationless ramble of free coffee and pure hype. And I hear it in the clack 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 of every keystroke from the journalist feverishly keeping track of it all in the media lounge. There were a whole hell of a lot of stories coming out of this year's New York International Auto Show, but if you want opinions on all that stuff, check out Mr. Regular's video on this year's show. He pretty much encapsulated it all far better and more succinctly than I could have. This is mostly just an opportunity to tell a story, and put some of my own auto footage to good use, so the story and the images aren't exactly going to match up in this episode of RCR Stories, since in the interest of getting this out before the auto show ends on April 23rd, I'm just going to let some of my footage run so I can get this to you sooner. Uh, Come to think of it, having this out before the 23rd is functionally impossible anyway, but I'd still like to have it out sooner rather than later, so I guess enjoy this whatever day it happens to be. Now, on to the show. This is a brief history
1: of the New York International Auto Show. Once upon a time, there weren't really auto shows in North America,
0: because the automotive industry wasn't at a point that could support it. This isn't to say that interest in cars wasn't blossoming as we neared the start of the 20th century, but that prickly rose we call the auto industry wasn't yet in full bloom. In 1895, the first American patent for a gas-powered car was granted to Charles Duryea, just one year before Henry Ford put his two-cylinder, four-horsepower Ford quadricycle to market. Together with his brother Frank, Charles formed the Duryea Motor Wagon Company, and manufactured and sold their patented car, becoming the first men in America to make money selling automobiles. It was an act that essentially gave birth to the automotive industry in America, although there's debate to this day of whether or not the brothers were truly the first. Either way, that's probably a story for another episode, but for now, the rising popularity of the automobile was creating new problems to replace all the issues that plagued the business of horse-drawn carriages. For instance, in 1896 we had the nation's first ever car accident, and it happened in New York, because of course it did. Long story short, some dude driving a durier hit a cyclist in what we can only imagine resulted in America's first right-of-way argument between a motorist and a cyclist. You'd probably think this would have happened in Portland, with its cyclist-choked streets and trailways, but nope. The East Coast holds this L but regardless of who caused what and why one thing had become perfectly evident cars were here to stay even if they did annoy people like cyclists pedestrians and even authorities like new york's parks department on the one hand having to clean up insane amounts of horse manure from your standard hansom cab was getting to be old hat but it was the devil people knew so the parks department placed a ban on these new-fangled horseless carriages of course in trying to prevent the automobile from gaining a foothold as the new ass carrier of choice the parks department had inadvertently set the wheels in motion for the first new york auto show now despite the fact that there were only about eight thousand cars registered in the united states at the time plans were being put into place for a north american exhibition Basically, the 27 founding members of the Automobile Club of America met at the Waldorf Astoria in June 1899 to discuss the future of automobiles in North America. In keeping with the reactionary nature of the auto show's origins, the Automobile Club itself was founded in response to the aforementioned ban on horseless carriages by the Parks Department. Together with investors, exhibitors, and auto manufacturers, the men organized the first New York Auto Show one year later. The event was held from November 3rd to November 10th, 1900 in Madison Square Garden, which is just a stone's throw from the Jacob Javits Center where the New York International Auto Show is held today. Among the vehicles on display were the popular steam-powered autos, the less-favored gas-powered models, and the attractive electric models, which were the stars of the show. More than any other horse-drawn carriage alternative presented at the show, the electric cars were intended to help clean up New York, since the city had to remove 15,000 horse carcasses every year, in addition to nearly half a million tons of horse manure from the ones that lived. However, the foundation wasn't really in place to support the growth of electric vehicles, since so many manufacturers were already hitching their wagons to steam and gas-powered cars. The Auto Show itself made a point of illustrating the efficiency of these types of cars, with a 20-foot-wide track for exhibitions and a 200-foot-long wooden ramp for hill-climbing demonstrations. The first show was a modest event by modern standards, as the event totaled 69 exhibitors and 160 vehicles that could be classified as completed. But by the standards of its time, it was an impressive gala, drawing approximately 48,000 attendees paying 50 cents a pop for entry. The show raked in around $24,000, which comes out to about $648,791
1: today. So it was only natural they would come back with another auto show the following year. The 1901 New York Auto Show was a tall order for the Automobile Club of America since it was considerably
0: larger than the inaugural show. Word had apparently traveled and people were flocking from all over the country to take part in the festivities, this in addition to the countless automakers preparing to get in on the event. In short, the club had to find room for 92 brand new exhibits, on top of some of the returning exhibits from the year before. They also had to make room for some special activities, such as breaking and handling contests. But the Automobile Club of America didn't really have any other feasible venue options outside of Madison Square Garden, so that's where they stayed. Sure, it was a bit on the crowded side, but the show remained a success in its second year. Coincidentally enough, the second auto show coincided with New York becoming the first state in the Union to require license plates on all automobiles. And I suppose it makes sense for the state in which America's first auto accident took place. You know, gotta catch hit and run drivers somehow. Among the cars debuting at the 1901 New York Auto Show was America's first mass-produced car in the form of the iconic Curved Dash Oldsmobile, which was driven to the show from Detroit, Michigan. The 617-mile journey was the longest trip any vehicle had ever completed in the United States up to that point, which added to the car's allure, but it had competition as bell-of-the-ball from the Toledo Model A, a car that had a reputation for its time as one of the best domestically produced steam cars. I suppose the hype surrounding the Model A was a response to the rising popularity of gas-powered vehicles, since the early years of the 20th century represented the start of a shift towards performance, as reflected in cars like the Mercedes series from Daimler Motor and director Emil Jelinek. Cars like the 1902 Mercedes Simplex and the 120 horsepower Gordon Bennett Model Mercedes were already making their mark on racetracks in Europe. While it would be some time before European performance found its way stateside, the wheels were already in motion. Naturally, the New York Auto Show continued to gain momentum throughout the early years of the 20th century. The 1903 event featured the debut of the Cadillac brand with the classic Model A. In 1906, the show was host to the Ford Model N, the company's first pure-economy car. Meanwhile, the 8th Annual Show moved the festivities from Madison Square Garden to the newly-built Grand Central Palace on Lexington Avenue, as the show now had to accommodate some 216 exhibits displaying 251 vehicles. This show featured an increased presence for six-cylinder engines, which which were steadily gaining in popularity prior to the First World War. However, during World War I, the show continued unabated, clinging to the showbiz notion that the show must go on. But then, it was about more than that, actually, because, I mean, after all, the New York Auto Show had become a part of the lifeblood of the automotive industry. And it largely helped carry the industry past those war years, and into the Roaring Twenties, by keeping enthusiasm for automobiles high, and by reaching potential consumers. Consumers who might not have been enticed to purchase a newer model car otherwise. The 1924 New York Auto Show featured the debut of the Chrysler brand, prior to its 1925 founding as a company. Now just a quick recap, but you can get this all in the Daimler Chrysler merger episode of RCR Stories. But basically, corporate fixer Walter Chrysler rescued failing automotive manufacturer Maxwell Motor Company with the invention of a six-cylinder Chrysler vehicle that hit the market in 1924. Its success prompted Walter Chrysler to take control of Maxwell Motor Company and rebrand it as the Chrysler Corporation in 1925. Of course, the six-cylinder came to party at the 1924 show, under the name B70, for its ability to reach top speeds of 70 miles per hour. But the car had more than just speed going for it, as the Chrysler B70 came pressure lubricated and featured such innovations as four-wheel hydraulic brakes, air and oil filters, and a tubular front axle. It helped push the company into the public lexicon, setting the stage for a brand that endures today, at the 2017 auto show, albeit with some rough patches over the past 90 years. That is, if it's not an understatement to call several bankruptcies and a failed merger rough patches... As America entered the Great Depression, we witnessed the rise of the big three automakers in the form of Chrysler, Ford, and GM, along with the decline of luxury car brands such as Cord, Horch, LaSalle, Stutz, and Pierce Arrow, whose Silver Arrow was among the most celebrated models at the 1933 auto show. The car, designed by Phil Wright, was considered a masterpiece of the era, but it was unfortunately the wrong car for the wrong time. The tagline for the Silver Arrow claimed that the vehicle gives you in 1933 the car of 1940. This added an extra layer of irony to the whole mess since, sadly, Pierce Arrow wouldn't actually live to see the 1940s, as the company closed up shop in 1938, just five years after the Silver Arrow debuted. It was hard out there for independent automakers as well. Just before the stock market crash in 1929, independent automakers accounted for nearly 25% of the entire U.S. auto market. By 1936, it was down to less than 9%. You can see this reflected in the types of vehicles that were taking center stage at the auto show over the subsequent years, as the Big Three continued to gain a foothold. Fully automatic transmissions became an option when Oldsmobile debuted the Hydromatic Drive, and the Pontiac Deluxe 6 would hit the show floor as a transparent display car at the 1939 show, while the Chrysler Thunderbolt would debut at the 1940 auto show as a concept car. Americans wanted bigger. They wanted better. But most of all, they wanted to forget about the circumstances of their nation, and of their own pocketbooks, if even for a moment. But then, you can't finance a car with hopes and dreams, no matter what J.D. Byrider tells you. With the downturn in auto sales, auto show attendance was also affected, albeit not in the way you might expect. As America neared the beginning of its involvement in World War II, the New York Auto Show was seeing record attendance thanks to the massive ticket price reduction that occurred over the course of the Depression. During the earlier years of the Auto Show, admission was 55 cents during the day and 75 cents in the evening. By 1939, entry to the New York Auto Show was only 40 cents, which is around $17 today. But the most trying years for the Auto Show were still yet to come. Now, I couldn't find any information on the early 1940s New York Auto Shows, and I realized it was for a good reason that. I had stupidly overlooked. As a byproduct of the Second World War, President Franklin D. Roosevelt had essentially frozen the entire auto industry, prohibiting the production of all cars, commercial trucks, and auto parts during the war via the federal government's Office of Production Management. Beginning on January 1st, 1942, the sale of cars and the delivery of any vehicles to buyers who'd previously ordered them was put entirely on hold. Granted, some exceptions were made by the local rationing board for people who'd ordered cars prior to the January 1st deadline. There were also cars rationed out during the war to those deemed essential drivers, but for the most part, commercial production had come to a standstill as the entire auto industry was repurposed for the war effort. The heads of the auto industry banded together to form the Automotive Council for War Production to oversee resource allocation and vehicle manufacturing for the war effort. In essence, the auto industry received huge government contracts to build everything from tanks to bombs, jeeps to airplanes, ammunition to helmets. Gasoline was rationed, and the speed limit was set to 35 miles per hour nationwide, which perhaps had the unintended side effect of making Americans pine for more exotic, faster, foreign models. Fascination with foreign car models increased tenfold in the postwar years, culminating in the very first international automobile show on February 5th, 1949, at the 69th Regiment Armory in New York. Aston, Bentley, Healy, Hillman, Jaguar, Rolls-Royce, Rover, Renault, Peugeot, and Simca Fiat were just some of the auto brands on display, and the international flavor of the outlier show was eventually integrated into the subsequent New York auto shows,
1: in accordance with growing public interest, which leads to our next phase. In 1956, the New York Auto Show went international. No, literally. This was the year they added
0: international to the name of the show, as many foreign automakers started to make the move west, The auto show itself was also on the move once again. This is the year the show relocated from the Grand Central Palace to the newly erected New York Coliseum, a 323,000 square foot space that featured four exhibition floors for events just like this. Approximately 1,500 people held tickets on opening day, with Mayor Robert Wagner inaugurating the festivities by proclaiming that the Coliseum was one of the wonders of the modern world. In reflecting this attitude, foreign automakers brought their own wonders. For instance, Sweden made its New York Auto Show debut in the form of the Saab 93B Coupe, a car shaped like Karl Malden's nose that featured a longitudinally mounted two-stroke, three-cylinder, 748cc engine. They also brought along the Saab
1: Sonic, bro!
0: Which is one of the more fascinating cars of its era. Long story short, Saab engineer Rolf Meld was a pretty big racing fan, so he got together with a few other gearheads named Lars Olav Olsen, Ol Lindvist, and Goddess Vensen and put together a two-seat roadster prototype that he thought would be the bell of the ball in the racing community. The team developed the entire car on a budget of just 75,000 kronor, which is roughly $8,320 in murk money. They would settle on the name Sonnet after a Swedish phrase that roughly translated to mean It's so neat, which sounds like the title of a Swedish sitcom. If nothing else, the design was striking, and it managed to be a real head-turner at the show, making a distinctive first impression in North America for the Swedish automakers. Japan would also follow Sweden to America at the 1959 auto show, as Toyota joined Datsun, Daihatsu, and Prince as the first Japanese car makers to appear at the event. Toyota wowed audiences with the mid-sized Tiara, which we would come to know as the second-gen Toyota Corona, while Nissan brought its Datsun Bluebird to the party. Funnily enough, the Bluebird was intended as a competitor to the Corona, not just in the market, but on the showroom floor. Needless to say, there was considerable interest in both cars at the auto show, and it was a reflection of the changing of the guard that signaled the beginning of the departure from the bulky, oversized domestic cars of old, and a trend towards more smaller, fuel-efficient vehicles. This was a trend that was somewhat overdue, considering that cars had simply become a part of everyday life in ways they hadn't in the pre-war years. Between the introduction of the interstate highway system and a recession that doomed such bulky, awkward vehicles as the Edsel, Americans were ready for a change, and while there were plenty of new cars worth checking out stateside on the horizon, such as the Mustang, the Fiero, the Chevelle, and the Dodge RT, foreign car manufacturers were making inroads in the 1960s thanks to cars like the Toyota Corolla and the Volkswagen Beetle, which continued to sell like gangbusters long past the point critics would have expected the novelty to wear off. Also, luxury cars were gradually on the rise again. For the 1961 New York International Auto Show, Organization President and famed trade show organizer Charles Snithow proclaimed that this year's event would bring about a new era of the common-sense car that combines the best in engineering, the finest styling, and the most practical in day-to-day operation. However, the display of engineering efficiency would be somewhat overshadowed by a model in a skin-tight gown and a scarf longer than Easter mass. It all centered on the debut of the Jaguar E Type, which attracted a downright dangerous crowd of forty-seven thousand looky loos to the exhibit on just the first day. Despite the spaciousness of the Coliseum, the crowd was packed in so tightly in this one specific corner of the auto show that it was difficult to imagine they weren't violating about a million different fire code regulations. With that said, it's hard to really blame the onlookers, considering the E Type coupe display featured Playboy Bunny Marilyn Hanold, who'd been Playmate of the Month back in June 1959. She was also an actress who had dated Elvis Presley in the 1950s, having been impressed that she had starred in a film with the Three Stooges, which he thought was cool as hell. The Auto Show was simply the first step in a larger profile for Marilyn in the entertainment industry, as she would go on to become something of a cult icon after starring in Frankenstein Meets the Space Monster, a camp classic so hated by critics that it's held in a sort of ironic esteem today. She would also appear on such shows as Bewitched and Batman, where she played the sidekick to Liberace's supervillain, Shandel and his evil twin brother, Harry. She also landed a role on the Sid Caesar Show in 1964, which she parlayed into a gig at the World's Fair as a spokeswoman for mobile oil, of all things. She would go on to get more intimately involved with oil when she married Skyline oil founder Rulon Keaton Nielsen, who, at 57 years of age, was 28 years her senior. Together, they would have three daughters, and while Marilyn didn't exactly have a huge career as some Oscar winning box office draw, from all reports, Marilyn had a pretty good life. Of course, I say had when I really should be saying has, since she's still alive today as of the publication date of this video. But I digress. Naturally, the E-Type debut made headlines, and arguably did more for the show than it actually did for Marilyn herself. You see, this was the year where it became clear that the New York International Auto Show wasn't just for gearheads and auto enthusiasts. It could be a glamorous occasion that your average Jane could enjoy as well. Sure, many of the cars were cost prohibitive, but you were paying for an experience with your auto show ticket. the buzz, the excitement, the camaraderie, it's its like seeing a blockbuster on opening night with a packed house that laughs at every joke, and, and they cheer at every big action sequence, and they applaud at the end. In this way, the New York Auto Show became larger than life, and allowed for your common man to feel worldly by way of the exotic offerings of foreign automakers. The 1970s proceeded like a chimera of previous eras, with the fascination surrounding imports being coupled with the largesse of auto show pomp and circumstance. An antique car parade kicked off the 1972 show, while 1976 bore witness to the most expensive craft ever displayed at the auto show in the form of the $38 million Apollo 15 Lunar Land Rover, presented by NASA. The show remained strong in the years that followed, with over 700 cars on display at the 1984 show, which had one hell of a lineup. In a sense, it was among the most significant years for the New York International Auto Show, considering it featured the debuts of the Nissan 300ZX, the Pontiac Fiero, and the Honda CRX. It just further hammered home that American car culture was defined by its acceptance of, and opposition to, imports. Case in point, import models accounted for a staggering 26.5% of the U.S. market in the early 80s, leading to concerns that the era of the American performance car had long since passed. While this wasn't necessarily the case, at least not entirely, one era that was definitely nearing its end was the
1: Coliseum era of the New York International Auto Show. The New York International Auto Show moved to the
0: Jacob Javits Center in 1987, where it became more popular than ever on the basis that it was now the last stop of the auto show season. Its placement in the spring made it one of the year's final auto shows, and this allowed automakers to debut cars that perhaps weren't exactly ready in time for the earlier shows. It offered a sense of projection, the ability to see the future in the mind's eye and get hyped for it. It also allowed consumers to prepare their finances accordingly, since the show gave potential buyers just enough lead time to get Pennywise before going pound foolish on a soon-to-be-replaced Mustang SVO or some shit. The 90s saw automakers stepping up at the auto show, while attendees began what would become a dangerous trend for the big event. But first, the lighter side of things. Mercedes-Benz debuted the M-Class at the 1997 show. The SUV was the first among luxury brands to come with electronic stability control, in addition to front and side impact airbags, presented in an aesthetic package that aimed to be more appealing than the rival Jeep Grand Cherokee. Initially, the M-Class was intended to replace the G-Class, which had remained one of the flagships of the Mercedes-Benz brand since the mid-1980s. Of course, as outlined in the Daimler Chrysler video, the 90s weren't all that great for Benz, so they made a deal with Mitsubishi at the start of the decade to manufacture an SUV based off of the Montero platform. But the plans fell through by the spring of 1992, leaving Mercedes to continue work on the project in-house through 1993 and 1994. The M-Class was ready for its first full testing run in March 1995, with pilot production beginning the following May. By February 1997, the very first M-Class rolled off the assembly line, just in time for the auto show that April. Despite struggling to compete with a far more popular Jeep Grand Cherokee, the M-Class had an advantage over some of its competition by being conceived as an SUV. SUV right from the start. Competitors in the luxury SUV market were simply selling larger versions of far more conservative models. Over the course of the seven years of that first generation, roughly 650,000 M-Class vehicles were produced, and the vehicle sold pretty well in North America, although this didn't prevent the necessity of the Daimler-Chrysler merger in 1998. But the late 90s were notorious for reasons that had nothing to do with luxury car brands. Yes, the New York International Auto Show has been an inexplicable host to violent outbursts, beginning with the 1998 incident, which was among the most infamous. On April 13, 1998, two men in their 20s were stabbed at the auto show after a heated argument escalated to violence. Apparently, the argument occurred at the BMW exhibit, and while it wasn't clear exactly what caused the argument in the first place, witnesses claimed that one of the men tried to take a picture of a BMW Z3 convertible when the other man stepped in front of the shot. Because BMW is the very definition of SERIOUS BUSINESS, the man whipped out his knife and stabbed the dude who walked into his shot, prompting the victim to whip out a knife of his own and retaliate. The wounds weren't life-threatening, as one of the attackers got by with a gash to his left arm, but both men spilled plenty of blood in the brawl, not that you'd know it from the relative lack of hoopla over the incident. In fact, the attack hardly drew that much attention at all, outside of a car show attendant who witnessed some commotion, raced over, and witnessed all the blood spatter on the ground. A Mercedes-Benz salesman, whose exhibit was near the site of the BMW stabbings, later told police that he had no idea that anything had gone down at all. Of course, the idea that this was all over a ruined photo op might actually be apocryphal, as a BMW attendant who witnessed the fight later claimed that two men had gotten into some kind of turf war over the car, which lends credence to the theory that this was somehow gang-related. After all, what are the odds of a guy stabbing someone only for his victim to whip out a knife of his own and hand him his receipt? It plays into a broader narrative of gang violence at the auto show, particularly as the event moved into the 21st century. At the 2004 show, for instance, an alleged gang member was arrested for sparking a riot, which prompted increases in security for the following year. But that didn't seem to curb violent tensions much. A huge brawl broke out at the 2005 show following a confrontation between 80 members of the Crips and the Bloods, who had made a tradition of attending the New York International Auto Show each year since, as authorities would later learn, Easter weekend was now considered gang initiation day among the local chapters. Three men were arrested in connection with the 2005 riots, all of them bloods, and all under the age of 22. Now, in a fortunate break, no one was actually hurt in the riot, but it was yet another unfortunate mark on the family-friendly reputation of the New York International Auto Show. The three men were charged with disorderly conduct and resisting arrest, and I imagine you're wondering why only three men out of the 80 who participated in the riot were arrested well as it turns out the offending parties had been asked to peacefully disperse but they weren't particularly in any sort of mood to put up with authority they shoved the troopers on hand and found themselves in handcuffs after the ruckus ended in essence they got the real-world equivalent of an instigator penalty in hockey But still, crime was becoming a fixture of the auto show in the 2000s, as theft went through the roof in the years that followed, with then-New York International Auto Show president Mark Scheinberg noting that attendees were becoming more brazen. Scheinberg stated that the manufacturers had gotten into the habit of removing anything that could be taken off the car, from shift knobs to even gas caps. While this might sound a bit extreme, Scheinberg relayed a story of having actually witnessed a tire getting rolled out of the showgrounds by one particularly ballsy attendee. This is in addition to petty acts of vandalism to the cars on the showroom floor. And it doesn't stop there. In the aftermath of the 2010 show, four people were shot, and 33 were arrested in a turf war that occurred near the Jacob Javits Center. New York Police Chief Spokesperson Paul J. Brown stated that the incident was caused by young men looking for trouble, and it seemed like they found trouble pretty easily. The first victim suffered a gunshot wound to the ankle at 8th Avenue and 40th Street, while a woman was shot with a BB gun near 7th and 51st. Later, two women near 7th Avenue and 34th Street suffered gunshot wounds to the elbow and thigh, respectively. This, in addition to yet another riot that resulted in the aforementioned 33 arrests. As usual, no one died, but security was once again increased in and around the Javits Center, in order to ensure a peaceful auto show. As a result, things brightened up in the 2010s, as the violence died down, allowing people to generally start enjoying the cars again without fear of witnessing a shanking, like it's that episode of BoJack Horseman where Todd goes to prison. We got the Dodge SRT Viper at the 2012 show, with the vehicle being dubbed, quote, America's most important performance car of the decade, and I'll let you make of that what you will. Later, 2014 would bear witness to the world debuts of the 2015 Acura TLX and Chevy Corvette Z06 convertible, and the North american debuts of the 2015 alfa romeo 4c and the 2015 bmw 4 series grand coupe of course you could go watch our 2014 new york auto show videos for more on our experience since that was our first year attending the show and we had a shitload to say about it you could also check out our videos for the 2015 show which offered conflicting perspectives from mr regular and myself we missed 2016 but hey, you can't be everywhere at once. But that year, which avoided being Easter adjacent altogether with its late March date, it featured the debuts of the 2017 Chevy Camaro ZL1, the new Shelby Mustang GTH, and the 2017 Mazda MX-5 RF. As Mazda continued that weird trend where they try to avoid calling a Miata a Miata. No, seriously, that 2015 MX-5 we just did a few weeks back? No Miata badging anywhere. It was really strange, at least to me. But then, how many Miatas would I ever get to drive on an average day in order to know anyway, you know? Regardless, the 2016 auto show garnered exactly as many headlines as you'd think it would, considering the New York International Auto Show was in the midst of an upward trend in global popularity thanks to social media. It was almost hard to imagine that this was the show born in response to a horseless carriage ban, but then that's part of the mystique of a show as intrinsically absurd and gloriously self-obsessed as the New York International Auto Show. It's the automotive equivalent of hedonism, of gratification for its own sake. Maybe it's kind of twisted to look at it that way, but, well, auto shows in general are an exercise in bombast, in ways both big and small, and that's really kind of the beauty of an auto show. It's a bellwether to the rest of the world that, hey, cars are more than
1: just appliances. They're a part of a broader fabric, one woven into who we are. Needless to say, the 2010s have been a renaissance for the New York International Auto Show. Over 1.2 million
0: people attend the show per year now, and our first year at the show was actually a record-breaker, as over 78,000 unique posts were made about the show online, and the hashtag NYIAS received a 110% increase in usage across social media. Roughly 678,000 households attended, while the show itself required 133,000 man-hours to complete from conception to closing day, and over 2.2 million pounds of trust were. In addition, TV viewership was up 42%, while worldwide radio listenership hit 85 million. Print and newspaper coverage reached an unheard of 1.6 billion impressions. Today, the New York International Auto Show occupies the 846,000 square feet of the Jacob Javits Center, with about 1,000 vehicles on display. No more exhibitions ensconced by a modest 20-foot-wide track or gentle inclines for test driving. Excess has taken hold at the New York International Auto Show, and I would imagine that's kind of the point. The New York International Auto Show is like one giant cheat day for people on an automotive diet. Maybe you don't go as hard as The Rock does on his cheat day, but you get to just pig out, gawking all the new cars you get to sit in, scope out, and even test drive. Sure, you know it's all glitz and glam and pageantry, but it's that one time each year where the auto industry takes on an almost Hollywood luster. In the madcap amusement park of the Jacob Javits Center, it's hard not to get swept up in the roller coaster of excitement, disappointment, disagreements, satisfaction, and wonder. And the camaraderie, too. Because when we're not busy stabbing each other over automotive disagreements,
1: car guys can generally be pretty damn cool, even as strangers a mutual experience like this. And that's a wrap on another RCR stories. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Um, this is
0: a bit of a rush job in the sense that once I went to the auto show, I realized I really couldn't do the type of uh, car show video that Mr. Regular does so well. So I sort of decided to take my video in a different direction. And so basically I, uh, put the other RCR story that I was writing on hold for the time being and quickly just researched the hell out of the New York auto show as much as I could find. And then I just sort of started writing and didn't stop. And so, you know, I'm kind of sleep choked,
1: but it's okay because again, you know, I love my job. I don't know. Just thanks for listening. (laughs) Have a good one.